Can I tell you something as I make my way down front? Amen. Hey. I love this band, all right? That's what I wanted to say. I love this band. Uh, what's not to love? <laughs> so let them know you love them too. Would you do that? Whoa. <laughs> love you guys. You guys are awesome. You know what I love? They are not up here performing. They are up here worshiping, and that makes all the difference in the world. I hope they don't mind me rearranging their music, but I don't think they're going to use this, and it just is a place to put my Bible and water. All right. So, I have a confession to make. What happened to that part of the chapel? Did we have a partial rapture and they went to heaven? Where did they all go? Oh, oh, that was you up there, and you're coming down to the more expensive seats. Yeah, good. Well, it's good to see you. Good to look you all in the eyes. You're, yeah. All right, so here's my confession. I am a conflicting, I am a conflicting conglomeration of emotions right now, and I'm afraid it's going to cause me and my words to get all muddled up. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that I have several strands of thought that I want to weave together into a beautiful tapestry for you to behold. But again, with, because I am totally ADHD, I don't know if I'm going to succeed in tying them all together. So I'm feeling very, very insecure about this little talk we're about to have. However, I have read through all of your cards, and... That's part of the emotions that I'm feeling. Oh, my word. The, the, you, I applaud your honesty, your transparency, your vulnerability, and every single question just ripped at my heart because I know they came from your hearts. And I'm going to try to take about a third of those questions and deal with them tonight in, in our little talk. One of the questions, though, really brought a smile to my face. And the question was, why? if I could ask God one question, the question would be, why can't Heartland last forever? Oh, I love that. I would love for this to last forever. I'd love to be with you here forever with one caveat, and that is I would want my dearly beloved Rebecca and my Dave and Amy and my Ashley and Cody and Callie and Maggie and little Nora and Lucy and my little dog Blue to be here with, and, and a cat named Maxwell, but that's my daughter's cat. I just wish they could all be here, and then it would be heaven on earth. I have good news, though. One day it will last forever, and it's going to be so much better than Heartland, and it's going to be called heaven, so I can't wait for that. All right, now I started something last night, and I want to bring it full circle, and I want to complete it tonight. Before I read it to you, in case you want to find it, it's going to be in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. It's something Jesus said. I quoted it last night, and I really do need to complete it. I only, I only dealt with half of it, and I need to deal with the other half of it, all right? But here's the thing that I want you to know. So in doing this, I'm going to introduce you to a dear friend of mine, someone who is not in the pages of the Bible, but she is in the shadows of the pages of the Bible, all right? 
You'll know what I mean by that in a minute. She's not mentioned directly, but she's mentioned indirectly. She factors very prominently in the story, but again, in the shadows. Here's what I want you to know, though, before we get into this whole thing, so you know where my emotions are, because this story hits me very, very closely. I'm going to introduce you to a woman who was a mom, a mother, all right? Her story is my story. Her story involves a dearly beloved son. My story involves a dearly beloved daughter, whom I've already referenced. Her name is Ashley. I'm not going to tell you her story because it is her story. But in some ways, it parallels for me as a dad the story of this mom. And I have felt compelled all day to tell you this story tonight. I'm not even sure why. So I'm not sure who of you this will hit, and I don't know quite how it will hit you. But I do want to bring it down to one takeaway so that if nothing else I say tonight makes sense, because I'm telling you the synapses of my mind are firing on overdrive, and my ADHD is through this little canopy tonight. So in fear of the possibility that what I say to you is just going to be a mess, <laughs> which I'm not, I'm not above making up here, a mess, I want you to know the takeaway. And the takeaway is this. No one is too far gone for God's grace. Meaning, you, and I see you, and I hear you, none of you here, no matter what you have ever done, no matter how far you have ever sunk, are ever too far gone for God's grace. Ever. Okay? So Matthew chapter 21, I want to read the last part, only half of the verse, the last half of verse 31, and in honor of God's word, if you would stand with me, please. Jesus said to them, now the them are the same people we talked about last night, the religious leaders, okay? And at this point, the religious leaders did not just want to destroy his reputation. At this point, Matthew 21, we are just days away from the crucifixion. At this point, they want to destroy his life. And here's what Jesus said to the religious leaders. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Sound familiar? The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, here's my challenge tonight. My challenge is this. Talking to you about prostitutes is easy. Easy peasy. Because a prostitute then and a prostitute today are the same thing. Tax collectors is a little more complicated because we have nothing in our culture to compare to tax collectors then. We're not talking about IRS agents. So let's pray together 
and then I want to introduce you to a friend, all right? Father, thank you for every student who is here. Thank you for every counselor who is here. Thank you for a great week, and whoever wrote that one card, boy, it captures so much of what I'm feeling right now, how I wish this could last forever, and I long for the day. I can't wait for the day when we're all together in heaven forever. May that day come quickly, but until then, I pray that you will tonight, in a special way, touch each heart that is here, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. His name was Levi. Ever heard of him? Levi does appear in the pages of the Bible. And it is a tragic, heartbreaking story. A family tragedy of epic proportions. We're talking tonight about a mother's broken heart. The name Levi goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Out of a guy named Levi in the book of Genesis came a tribe of Israelites. I don't want to make this really complicated. This is going to be very simple for you. There is one of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe you've heard of them. One of those tribes were called the Levites. The Levites. And the Levites were the guys who served in the glorious temple in Jerusalem. The temple that our Jewish friends call the house. The temple, the place that Jesus called my father's house. The temple was the place where God's glory flamed and flashed. God literally moved in there. A couple of you asked the question on your three by five cards, why can't we see God today? Well, I would dispute the premise of that question, but I understand what the question means. There's nothing I can point to and say, that's God. And it's probably a good thing, because if we saw God in all of his glory, it would incinerate us. It is so I mean, you take the sun. Imagine if you were looking face to face at the sun up close and personal, and you magnify that a thousandfold, a millionfold, ten billionfold to get the glory of God. I mean, there was only one guy allowed into the Holy of Holies where God dwelt, and it was only one man one day out of the year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And even then, he had a little rope on his ankle, and he wore a little dingley bell because when he went back there to make offering on behalf of Israel, the fear was that being in the presence of God would strike him dead, and they would have to pull him out if the little tingly bell stopped tingling. So you don't enter into the presence of Almighty God lightly. This is a big deal. But here's the thing. If you and I were alive back, if you and I were alive back then, we could, I could, if I was your dad or grandpa, for example, I could take you up to the temple up in Jerusalem, and I could say to you, do you see that building? That's where God lives. He's in there. The Levites served in there. Not behind the veil where the glory flashed, but just outside of it. They led the people in the singing of the Psalms. 
They were the worship band of the temple, the Levites. They offered the sacrifices to Almighty God. They put the incense on the altar. They served alongside the priests. They were a pretty exclusive group. And to be born into the tribe of Levi was an unspeakable privilege. Well, there is no indication that Levi's mom or dad were Levites. We don't read anything about them in the Bible. Consequently, we assume from that that there was nothing notable about them except for this. They named their son Levi. If he couldn't be a Levite and serve in the temple, then the next best thing would be to name him Levi. All right. That's one strand of this tapestry. Can I shift gears completely and tell you something that may seem to you to be totally unrelated? But believe me, it is very much related. And if I succeed tonight, I will relate them. And if I fail, I won't. And you'll wonder why I brought it up. Okay. There is a place in Jerusalem that is very special to me. It is holy ground to my many Jewish friends. The place in Jerusalem is called, it is not a biblical site, which might surprise you when I tell you how much it means to me. Jesus never went there. It didn't exist when Jesus was alive and walking the streets of Jerusalem. But it is there today, and it is called Yad Vashem. That's Hebrew. I just taught you some Hebrew. Yad Vashem. The name Yad means a memory. And Vashem means a name. A memory and a name. We would call it today, we would call it the Holocaust Memorial. It was built in order to remember the purpose of Yad Vashem is to remember the names of every single victim that was, who was, incinerated in the ovens of Auschwitz and the other death camps in the Nazi network of annihilation. Have any of you been to one of the Holocaust museums here in America? Okay. Well, the one in, where, where? Washington, D.C.? Yeah? Okay. Where else? Okay, L.A.? Yeah. This is different. Those are museums. And by the way, I have two, and what always gets me is when I see the, if you, if you saw it, you'll remember this, the display of the sandals and the shoes. The last article of clothing they removed before going into the gas chambers. And I always look at those shoes, and I think if those shoes could talk, what a tale they would tell. Every shoe representing an individual, every individual who had a name, and every name had a story. Names are very, very important in the Jewish tradition. And so to commemorate, it's not a museum, Yad Vashem, it's a memorial. There's an eternal flame there. It burns night and day. It is burning right now. 
And the part of Yad Vashem that always gets me the most is called the Children's Memorial. Let me describe it to you, if I may. All right? Very simple. Everything in Judaism is symbolic. They think, Middle Eastern people think in terms of pictures. Okay? Remember that, because we will pick that up later in the week. The Bible is a picture book. Everything is pictures. All right? So when you walk in to this children's memorial, in the center of it, there are six candles on a vertical candle stand. Six. How many of our Jewish friends were murdered in the Holocaust? Six million. Well, you can't put six million candles in there, so they put six. One for each of the million who were killed. Does that make sense to you so far? All right. The whole rest of the building are mirrors. The whole thing is mirrors, walls of mirrors. And when you walk in, there are no lights. You are walking into total darkness except for those six candles. And the mirrors reflect the flames of those six candles all throughout the room, and the, it, the light bounces off mirror to mirror to mirror. So by the time you walk in, it's like walking into a planetarium full of stars, only it's all flickering candles, six million of them by the time they're all reflected, okay? And as you walk in, all you hear, there's no music, there are no sound effects, it is pitch black except for these pinpricks of light. In theory, six million of them. I haven't actually counted them. You have to hold on to a handrail because you can't see where you're walking as you walk through it. And all you hear, one after the other, in a continuous recorded loop that plays non-stop over and over and over again is one name after another after another the names of every child murdered by the Nazis and it's something you will never forget I hear them echoing in my mind right now To our Jewish friends, there is only one thing worse than a Nazi. Do you know what or who? A Jew who sold his soul to the Nazis and betrayed his own people. Can you imagine being a Jew? And we're talking only 75 years ago. This is not ancient history. To put that in perspective, yesterday I turned 67. So, not much longer than I've been alive, this happened. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a Jew knowing what the Nazis were doing 
and saying, I am going to attach myself to them and betray my own people and contribute to their being annihilated in the gas chambers. I will help turn my neighbor, a fellow Jew, into ashes and soap. That, to our Jewish friends, is betrayal beyond description. I can only imagine what it would feel like. Maybe it's true of one or two or a few of you. I don't know. If you ever traced your ancestry, like Ancestry.com or whatever, and send in your DNA, how would you feel if it came back that you are the direct blood descendant of a Nazi? I may be the only one in this room, I don't know for sure, but I may be the only one who knows how that feels. No, I am not the direct blood descendant of a Nazi. I am the direct blood descendant of the first century, Jesus century equivalent of a 20th century Nazi. I am a Roman. I'm Italian. Dear friend of mine, his name's Shmuel, he asked me one time, he lives in Jerusalem, he said, why don't you hate me? Because he knows I love him, love him to death. I said, Shmuel, why would I hate you? He said, because I'm Jewish. I said, what does that have to do with anything? He said, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. Well, history says the Jews killed Christ. I'm Jewish. I killed Jesus. I said to him, Shmuel, let me correct your history. That is not true. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans did. So I have a question for you. I mean, sure, the Pharisees put them up to it, but it was Romans who drove the nails through his hands and feet. I said, I have a question for you. Why don't you hate me? He said, why would I hate you? I said, because I'm a Roman. I killed your Messiah. And we now have an unbreakable bond of love. He'd take a bullet for me and I'd take one for him. A memory and a name. Names are everything in the Jewish tradition. So when a young mom gave birth to a boy and she named him Levi, that meant something. Our Jewish friends don't buy a book of baby names and pick a cute name. They, they name a baby on the basis of the meaning of the name. And Levi means attached. As in, attached to God. And it was her dream, this mom, it was her dream that her boy would grow up to be as attached, as devoted, as committed to God 
as the Levites were in the temple. So far, so good? But here's the problem. Levi made a choice. And it broke his mom's heart. As well as his dad's. But I focus on the mom because I think of my beautiful bride and what has happened in our family history. And it was one thing for me to feel the pain, but to watch her experience the pain was, for me, far worse. Now, let me explain. The woman last night, the prostitute, she was a victim of circumstances that were not her fault. Very likely, as I said, we don't know for sure, her husband either died or he divorced her. So through no fault of her own, through no choices she made, she was forced by the culture to live a life of prostitution. Okay? Levi was not a victim. He made his choices. And what he chose to become was a tax collector. A tax collector is a Jew who sells his soul not to the Nazis, but to the Romans. Now, let me draw a couple of important distinctions, all right? The Nazis were all about annihilation. The Romans were all about inhumane and barbaric oppression. The Nazis had gas chambers. The Romans had crosses. The Nazis picked up children, and I, I don't want to get gratuitous in my description, meaning I don't want to be over the top or inappropriate. Those names that were read, one child after another, they either died of disease in the camps, starvation in the camps, were worked to death in the camps, were incinerated in the camps, or if they were young children, like we have running around this chapel tonight, and I'm sorry, this is simply the facts of life, the Nazis delighted in picking up children, one, two, three years of age, and swinging them by the ankles and bashing their heads against walls. That's, not, that's what the Nazis did. That is not what the Romans did. What the Romans did is children, if you were a female, you would be raised to be a, slex, a sex slave, serving the whims and wishes of some demented Roman who would use you and play with you as a toy, a boy toy. If you were a boy... You would be raised either to die in the fields, die on the massive Roman building projects, or, or you would be raised to be the sex slave of a homosexual, perverted Roman.
And all of that, from the crosses to the slavery to the human trafficking, was financed, paid for, by taxes. And those taxes were collected by Jews who decided to betray their own people and cooperate with the Romans, sell their souls to Rome, and sell literally their own people to the Romans. And the way it worked is this. The attraction was the Romans are very smart. They made this a very lucrative enterprise. Here's what the Romans said to every tax collector. You are required to collect this amount in taxes. Wherever you are, where Levi was, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, a lovely little town today called Capernaum. I've been there. I can take you there. Real people who lived in real places, who had real experiences, all of which point to a real God. And there was a tax collection booth there. Levi was in that booth, and Levi would collect the taxes. And what the Romans said was, we want you to collect this amount of taxes. Anything over and above that, you can keep for yourself. And so not only did Levi tax his own people, but he overtaxed them so that he could pocket the profits. And if you couldn't pay the taxes that Levi demanded of you, if you owed $10,000 in taxes, but he charged you $15,000 so that he could pocket the profit, right? You with me? If you couldn't pay it, he would take your land sell it and give the money to the Romans and keep the profit. He would take your animals, sell them, and take the money, give what was required to the Romans and pocket the difference, or take your children, boys and girls, sell them to the Romans, consigning them to a life worse than death. pay off the Romans and keep the profits for themselves. Levi, listen to me, in full view of his mother and presumably his father, disattached himself from his own people and attached himself to the Romans. In the minds of the Jewish people of Jesus' day, the only thing worse than a Roman was a tax collector. This is a man who chose to leave his family, leave his people, leave his religious tradition, leave his God, break the hearts of his parents, walk away from all of it, and attach himself to the Romans. 
when I say that the story of the mom and the dad are my story, obviously my daughter, and again, this is her story, I have permission to tell you this much, never attached herself to the Romans, but through a series of circumstances that I'll not get into because that's for her to tell, not me, she walked away from everything. Our family, my religious tradition and that of my wife, our God, she walked away. And nothing in this world shatters the heart of a parent more. In the Jewish tradition, when a child does that, the family has a ceremonial funeral because it is as if to them the child has died. The Bible doesn't say this, but the culture would dictate that Levi's family had a funeral. And Levi would be symbolically buried. And they would mourn the loss of their son as if he had died. Let me tell you the truth, okay? And again, I've never met his parents, but I can tell you, as a dad, they would have rather he died than do what he did. You've got to understand something, okay? I don't know if you realize this or not. In the world in which Jesus grew up, every time you went to the marketplace, like you would call it the mall, every time you went to school, every time you went to your friend's house, every time you kicked a soccer ball down a back alley, whatever you were doing, there were crosses on every street, and the people hanging on them were your friends and neighbors. And it was done very publicly, it was done on the street, the main streets. It was done at face level, not way up on a hill. It was done so that you could see them. You could hear their cries of torment. You could look in their eyes. It could take up to three days for the victim to die, the most horrible, excruciating kind of death you can imagine. And all of that was a deterrent to say to you one thing. Don't you dare defy Rome or that happens to you. That's what happened to Jesus. You think his was an easy life? All of it paid for by the money that Levi collected. Here is the most unbelievable part of this story. Are you ready? And if you think that Jesus allowing a prostitute to touch him, as he did last night, was a scandal in the eyes of the religious, try this one on for size. This morning, I said to you, Jesus is what? Gentle. Just how gentle was he? Watch this. This is in Luke, let me make sure, chapter 5. 
You don't need to turn there. I'll just quote it to you. You can write down the verses and look them up later, 27 and 28. But just listen. Jesus was walking down the main street of Capernaum. And he was passing by the tax collector's booth. And on duty that day in the tax collector's booth was a young man, a Jew, with a very Jewish name, and his name was Levi. And Luke says that Jesus went up to him. This is why I didn't want you to turn to it now, because if you're reading ahead, it'll ruin the surprise of the story. But if you did, that's fine. Jesus walked up to him, and Luke says, and Jesus said to Levi. The only thing worse to our Jewish friends than a Roman is a tax collector. Right? So what do you suppose Jesus said to him? Everybody was watching. The rabbi face to face with the tax collector. And this is what he said. Levi, I invite you to follow me and become my disciple. Do you know that according to Jewish law, a tax collector was not permitted to give testimony in court? you know that according to Jewish law, a tax collector, even though he was a Jew, could not go to synagogue? Do you know that in Jesus' religious tradition, the rabbis debated the question whether or not a tax collector could ever even be saved? And there was a whole school of Jewish thought that concluded that once a man became a tax collector and, what does Levi mean? Attached? Attached himself to Rome? He was beyond redemption. That was a sin unpardonable. That was a sin unforgivable. That was a sin of, that, was going, that was going a step too far passing the point of no return. Jewish society buried Levi. He was dead to them because of his own choices. And Jesus, a rabbi, comes along and says, Levi, I see something in you. I don't see you as a tax collector. I don't see you as unredeemable. I don't see you as having no worth or value. Levi, you are not dead to me. I didn't attend your funeral. Levi, I see you. I hear you. And I want to save you. But here's the deal. 
If you follow me, you attach yourself to me, not Rome. Now, what do you suppose the Romans would think if one of their tax collectors walked away to join himself, attach himself to a Jewish rabbi? He would be risking his own what? Life. He knew, Levi knew, if I do this, tomorrow I might be on that cross. And what Luke writes next is absolutely mind-blowing. Mind-blown. It ought to be when you read this. Immediately, Levi got up, left the tax collector's booth, and it says, and he left everything to follow Jesus. including, are you listening? He left not only his job, not only his fortune, not only his position, not only the safety and security of serving Rome and not having to fear Rome, even putting his own life at risk, he left something else. He left his name. He changed it. Mark and Luke, when they tell his story, call him Levi. When Levi tells his story, he uses his new name. His life was so radically changed when he attached himself to Jesus that he changed his name. Names are very important to our Jewish friends. A memory and a name. He changed his name. You've not heard of Levi, perhaps, but you've heard of this. His name, new name, Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew. Matthew, the name that means a gift from God. And I happen to know a mom and a dad, listen carefully, who in that moment, when Matthew changed, when Levi changed his name and attached himself to Jesus as the recipient of the gift of God. I know a mom and a dad with a broken heart who in that moment got their son back as if he was resurrected from the dead. Which is what happened to my dear bride Rebecca and me the day that Ashley came home. Unlike, I'm not Jewish, so I didn't have a funeral for her. I'm more like the father in the prodigal son story, if you remember that story. If you don't, son ran off, he ran away. Most Jewish families would have had a burial for him. 
not this dad. This dad is the Jesus figure in the story. This dad was out on the front porch of his house every single day of his life after his son left, scanning the horizon, waiting and hoping and praying for his daughter, his son, the prodigal son, his son to come home. That was me. That was my wife every day on the front porch of the house, scanning the horizon, hoping and praying and pleading with God. It took years. But she came home. None of you have ever done on your worst day anything that even comes close to what Levi did. If Jesus can save Levi, think of what he can do with you. It's all about to whom do you choose to attach yourself. That's the issue. To whom do you choose to attach yourself? So let's review. Last night, the takeaway, the Bible is God's written record, say it with me, of real people who lived in real places, who had real experiences, all of which point to a real God. This morning, the takeaway was three words. Jesus is gentle. Tonight, the takeaway is no one is ever beyond God's grace. No one is ever beyond God's grace grace. And so I end right where we began, and now you will understand what Jesus meant when he said, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. If he can save them, he can save you.